0: This is Surviving Ministry, conversations designed to help you last longer and grow stronger in ministry. I'm your host, Seth Stevens. Don't work on a
1: ministry. Work on a relationship and minister from overflow. Our relationship with Christ needs to grow. If we don't love Jesus more now than we did five years ago, something's wrong. Here's the thing about Jesus. We never get to the end of him. We never see all of him. There's no place where the adage, you can't please everybody, applies more than the ministry or the pastorate, because it's just loving people, which will draw them to the cross.
0: Today's guest is Ronnie Stevens. Ronnie has been a pastor both in the United States as well as internationally. He served 24 years in overseas ministries and is the author of three daily devotion books, The Path to Discipleship, The Path to the Cross, and From Creation to Covenant. You can purchase these books from RampartPublications.com. I met Ronnie almost 37 years ago when I was born. Today we will be discussing his changing perspective on his spiritual state as a young man the taboo nature of the gospel, the three roles of a lead pastor, how to get through difficult times in ministry, and much, much more. Let's dive right in. You had an interesting experience in your conversion in that uh, you uh, believed you were saved for a period and then uh, came to the conviction uh, that you weren't. Uh, Describe kind of your experience from going from... uh, what you would consider a a nominal believer to a true believer. I grew up in a church going home
1: with a godly mother who was very interested in spiritual things and very interested in missions. And I was taken to church not only Sunday morning but Sunday evening. I think I had an interest in the things of God which was probably something more serious than other boys my age. And I think that helped to deceive me in terms of overestimating where I really was with the Lord. I walked an aisle in a Southern Baptist Church when I was eight years old. I was baptized in the spring of 1959. And I certainly believed all the data of the gospel. As I got a little bit older, I probably didn't believe all of Genesis, and I probably, and I know I didn't really like some of Paul's emphases, but I was certainly enthusiastic about who Jesus is and what he did for sinners on the cross. The way I interpreted my experience for a very long time, as a matter of fact, until my late 40s, was that I drifted away from the Lord in my teens and came back to Him in my 20s. And that was my testimony. That was my testimony in my early pastorate. That's what I would tell the churches who talked to me about leadership positions. But as I began in my 40s to have more specific memories, I began to doubt whether I could have really been born again during those early years. Soon I came to the conclusion that I didn't come back to the Lord at age 20. I came to the Lord the first time at age 20. There were two basic reasons for that at the moment or in the moment when I was coming to this new conclusion. One was that the change in me was so radical. I was simply unrecognizable after June 1971 to what I was before. Completely a revolutionary uh, transformation in my whole outlook personality. And the other thing is I realized that before, there was no restraint before sin, at least no appreciable restraint, and there was no regret after sin, at least no appreciable regret. And I'm not talking about the normal sins we associate with the sixties. My teenage years uh, tracked with the sixties because I was born in 1950. So my teen years, of course, would have been 1963, 1970. I came to know the Lord in 1971. But I remembered things which I believe would have been impossible for a true believer. and. Soon, I settled in this new narrative of determining when my actual conversion took place. And there were some people who disputed that, and they said I was being a little too legalistic or a bit too unrealistic. But I still felt greater peace in understanding my past life in that way. And then the Lord did something very special to confirm that. In... January 2014, my mom went to heaven, and as we were cleaning out her condominium, my wife came across a letter that I wrote when I was almost 18 years old. I was a first quarter freshman at the University of Georgia, and it was a letter to both my parents, but mainly it was a letter to my father explaining why I could not go into the family business, which he hoped that I would do. Now, I didn't have as clear an understanding of my lack of aptitude then as I do now. As I look back on it, there would have been no way I could go into the family business anyway because I didn't have the gifts. My sister got those gifts, but I didn't. But as I was explaining it to him, amazingly, I was explaining to him that the reason was because I believed that I had to be a minister. I had to be a pastor. Now, if that was all the data there was maybe I would conclude that, well, I was wrong. Maybe I really was a Christian from childhood. But actually, the very opposite um, was affirmed because as I read that letter, it was clear that the 17-year-old, 18-year-old who wrote that letter was an unconverted person. And it was really all about me. And... It was clearly somebody who who didn't know the Lord who wrote that letter. As a matter of fact, the letter was so painful to read that I still haven't read all of it. I just haven't mustered up the courage to read all of it because it was so painful. So I, I even though it was painful and even though it was embarrassing, I was very grateful for the Lord to provide clear documentation as to at least when my conversion wasn't, that I knew that in the fall of 1968, my conversion had not taken place. In fact, God moved toward me with his grace and saved me wonderfully uh, in June of 1971. How did that happen? Well, the Lord was really moving in the United States at that time. And it was a confluence of events uh, I read a book about biblical prophecy. I won't share the name of it because I think it's a very bad book. It, I, knew, I knew from the beginning that it was extremely poorly written, but I was intrigued by the content. But I also won't mention it, and those who are more or less my age will easily guess what book it was but, because it, it achieved a tremendous uh, amount of uh, notoriety but it also essentially set a date. It interpreted the uh, budding of the fig tree that the Lord mentions in Matthew 24 as the reemergence of the state of Israel and uh, the political, secular state of Israel. And a biblical generation is about 40 years. And so combining 1948 with... 40 years, it essentially um, dated the coming of the Lord sometime before 1988. Now, apart from that date-mongering, which, of course, we're forbidden to do, and which, of course, has been discredited because we're now 32 years past that date, um, still there was some startling um, instances of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, much of it to do with the nation of Israel. And it really got my attention and made me think that the Bible was a supernatural book. The other influence was my mom enrolled me in a seminar, which also gained some notoriety and which has also been somewhat discredited. Mm. But it made a major, major impact on me. And at that seminar, I was made to believe that The Bible is not something just for Sunday morning at eleven o'clock. The Bible is all the Bible is relevant for all of life. It's a living book which spoke directly to my heart in every aspect of anything that I cared about. The third thing was for the first time in my life I was thrown together as a senior at University of Georgia. With Christians my age who were serious about the gospel, serious about sharing their faith, serious about studying the Bible, serious about discipleship. That was Campus Crusade for Christ, not yet discredited, thank God, now called Crew. And somewhere in a combination of those three influences, um, I came to know Jesus. So that's mm-hmm. how it happened.
0: And now you. You said that in the letter you received, there was um, it, it proved to you you had not been yet saved. Uh, yet it was in a letter expressing desire to go into ministry. So that that makes me curious. How did um, how did your uh, de- desire and and direction and eventually uh, entrance into ministry evolve?
1: Well, and again, it's not a letter I received. It's a letter I dis- that I wrote and then yep. I discovered uh, a generation later. I think that, sad to say, there are many people in ministry who are not born again. Hmm. And I'm, I don't want to accuse any one individual. I just say that because it's a fact. And I think there are many aspects of ministry which are attractive Attractive to somebody who likes to read, attractive to somebody who wants to sort of design his own schedule, attractive to people who who like to be with people and encourage people. Um, I think I probably overestimated my gift as a speaker, my gifts as a speaker, as a young man, and I thought I'll probably be good at this because I remember the only other thing I really thought much about was being a lawyer, which also involved verbalization and argument and persuasion. So it seemed like a congenial task. I also, though, I had a God awareness, and I really believed that if there was a heaven and a hell, that the most important influence we could have on anybody would be to try to get them into heaven. And so, again, I was, I was orthodox in my views. I just hadn't personally appropriated the saving benefit of Christ's death through a, a personal faith and a, a true trust. Well, let me put it this way. There was no true evidence of regeneration beyond an interest in Christianity and even an attraction to Christianity and i think it's i think it's very possible to be attracted to the man christ jesus without a saving knowledge of his work on the cross it's very hard not to be attracted to jesus there are, a person has to be pretty depraved and there are depraved people out there who speak disparagingly of, of jesus frederick nietzsche certainly spoke disparagingly of him but he was a depraved man but there are many people who admire jesus but they don't believe that he's the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Mm-hmm. I did believe that, but I had no personal appropriation of his of the benefit of his death on the cross by saving faith. There was no evidence of it
0: yeah. so then uh, what kind of uh, guided you after your uh, conversion to um, pursue ministry? What, what kind of made you determine that that was the course you were going to go? Well, I think there are many ways that God can call somebody.
1: And I think one way which Paul treats in 1 Corinthians 9 is compulsion. Sometimes you do things because you can't do anything else. Luther vocalized this reality most famously at the Diet of Worm, and I know some scholars doubt whether he actually said this. But when Luther set about the task of reforming the church, he was a little bit reluctant. He certainly didn't know it would lead to what it did lead to. I don't think he ever had schism or a, or a division in mind, in the beginning at least. But at that great convocation, he said, here I stand. God help me. I can do no other. And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I would say a consuming interest, which amounted to an obsession. Now, the word obsession can be um, pejorative, but Hopefully it was a benign obsession, I believe that it was, for me to live as Christ and to die as gang. So there simply wasn't anything else I was interested in. There was, some, there was certainly nothing else that I felt a compulsion toward other than doing what God wanted me to do. And I believe that he wanted me to preach the gospel. And that was a very happy discovery
0: because that's what I wanted to do. Uh, Who were some of the people that shaped your, or, or what was some of the best advice you got when you were starting out in ministry? Oh, um, well, I think one
1: bit of counsel I got, which I have very imperfectly applied, is save your mornings for God. Um... Another bit of counsel, which is along those same lines, is a priority is whatever you do first. I actually learned that from a, uh, a, um, a secular story mm-hmm. about a rich man seeking advice from a famous expert. He said, Whatever is most important in the day, do it first. Also, I think when you study the lives of people who made an impact, who made a difference, Robert Murray McShane said that what the church needs from its ministers is not so much um, great gifts but great likeness to Christ. So you have to ask yourself the question, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens by pursuing him. It happens by staying close to him. So the great priority of ministry is to stay close to Jesus yourself. We can't lead people to places where we've, either we've never been or where we are not or where we're not going. So as we pursue Christ, others will follow once they see Christ in us because Christ is attractive. There are not many attractive things in most of us, but Christ is very attractive. He's magnetic. He's magnetic. And um, I heard this from Tommy Nelson. I'd been a pastor a few years when I heard this. I actually asked Tommy where he got it. He said he got it from a navigator. And that is, the counsel is, don't work on a ministry. Now, that sounds a bit heretical. Don't work on a ministry. Work on a relationship and minister from overflow. Fruit is excess life. Well, how do you bear fruit? You bear fruit by abiding in the vine. So, um, again, these different uh, bits of counsel converge. I think one other great bit of counsel comes from Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers said, prayer does not prepare us for the great work prayer is the great work I learned from Lewis Berry Chafer that prayer is the first work of evangelism and so I actually got some bad counsel uh, I won't say who I don't want to stain his memory it's interesting because I just thought of him this morning and thought of what I owed him And but I won't, I won't suggest who he is, because there are many people still alive who remember him. But I remember one bit of counsel I got was to prepare myself for a secular job, because ministry might not work out. And although that might be a helpful bit of worldly wisdom, and it could have been his accurate assessment of whether I would make it or not, (laughs) um, I shouldn't be too harsh on the man but I, I do think that was bad counsel. I don't think you can over-prepare for ministry. What What was the vocation you were going to go into if it didn't work out? Well, that's another good question. <laughs> I, I have the great luxury of not being good at anything. So um, some people, I remember I followed a pastor once and Uh, A a wise man in his church, he didn't have a great experience, and I don't think he stayed in ministry long, although he had a wonderful preparation and he had uh, admirable gifts. But this person said to me that uh, his problem was that he was good at so many things, Mm. and he was interested in so many things, and he dabbled in so many things, other than getting ready for the pulpit and giving pastoral care. Whereas I think I would have been a football coach if I'd
0: never been a pastor so well um, backing up a little bit you know you mentioned this uh, apprehension of Christ as, as something that's uh, central to, to ministering well, pursuing him um, in practical terms how do you, how do you make Christ the priority and how do you pursue him in, in your In your life? I think that
1: one thing is to be very, very disciplined in our time commitments, but to avoid anything rote and mechanical in the way we spend that time. In other words, I think that um, we need to be careful about praying the same rote formulate prayers. We need to spend time exposing our heart to the Lord, confessing our sins to the Lord, um, our disappointments, our desires. There's no use hiding anything from him. And I think the devil delights to use God's attributes against him. In other words, God is omniscient. We can't tell God anything he doesn't already know. And the devil will throw that in our face and he'll say, well, you know, there's no need to talk with him about that because he already knows more about it than you do. That's true. But a child wants, a father wants the child to talk, to communicate, to relate. It's very, 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 very many years before a child will tell a father something he doesn't already know. But the father delights in the child lisping, grasping at vocabulary, putting sentences together, informing. Because, because he delights in the acquisition of knowledge? No, because he delights in the growth of the relationship. And our relationship with Christ needs to grow. If we don't love Jesus more now than we did five years ago, something's wrong. And there's nothing wrong with him. James 4 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Uh, One thing I heard, which is also helpful, I heard this in the early 90s from the great missionary statesman J. Oswald Sanders. I got to know him the last couple of years of his life, and I heard him in a missions conference in Berchtesgaden near Hitler's eagle's nest in southern Germany. And I don't even think this was original to J. Oswald Sanders, but he asked the question, can any of you remember when you were closer to God than you are right now. And he said, you know, bow your heads, close your eyes. He said, raise your hand. I'm the only one looking. If you can remember any time you were closer to the Lord than you are right now, raise your hand. And then Dr. Sanders said, if you raised your hand, I have another question for you. He said, who moved? Who moved away? Did you move away from God or did he move away from you? He said, now see, that's not a fair question because I know the answer to that question. I know that if there were a time when you were closer to the Lord than you are right now, that you're the one who moved away. And I know because of this promise in James 4, if we draw near to the Lord, he will draw near to us. And so I think there needs to be a conscious and a conscientious act, effort to draw near. Obviously, the ways to do that are obvious. They are in prayer, they're in Bible study, and they're also in obedience. I think another way we draw near the Lord is by finding somebody who doesn't know him and initiating and talking about Jesus and talking about the cross and talking about the free offer of the gospel. Because when we do that, we're being obedient, and Jesus' last promise in the gospels where I will be with you. In what context will he be with us? Now, that's a very interesting concept. How can an omniscient being, excuse me, how can an omnipresent being be more with you? An omnipresent being is always with you. And yet, these are the last things that Jesus talked about. He talked about it in the upper room in John 14. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? So that uh, so you can be with me. I, you can be with me. That where I am, you will be also. So the last thing he says in the last verse of Matthew is, and I will be with you even unto the end of the age. But what does he say in the next to the last verse? That's verse 20. Verse 19 is the Great Commission that when we go out into all the world and we make disciples and we preach the gospel and we teach everything that Jesus has commanded, he will be with us. So another way to draw near to him is to obey his commandments, especially his commandments to preach the gospel, which is a command or or a sphere of obedience which is greatly in eclipse in the West in the early 21st century
0: century. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, I think there are three or four reasons. One reason is because of abject fear and the desire to please people instead of God. There's a wonderfully powerful verse in Isaiah 2.22. It's especially powerful in the King James. It says, cease from man. Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils. And we've got to get over this business of of uh, man pleasing, I think we've. I think a part of it is cultural. You can measure a culture by its taboos. Now, a hundred years ago, you could talk about Jesus to almost anybody in the United States of America. You could talk about what happens after you die, when you die. You couldn't talk about what two people who were attracted to each other, who were alone together, might be up to during that alone time. You certainly would never talk about what two people of the same gender who were attracted to each other would be up to. Well, now the taboos have flipped, you see. Now you can talk about those things which were once discreet, but you cannot talk about those things which were once open and acceptable. And that change marks a definite degradation and degeneration in our society. It's an extremely, extremely ominous transformation. But the Christian can't be... A prisoner to cultural captivity, we cannot let the culture shape our conversation now, obviously we've got to be very um, tactful. we've got to be more diplomatic. I'm not sure if we need to earn the right to talk about Jesus though I think maybe that's going too far. We are to proclaim we're to placard, which is one way don carson the great greek scholar translates preach we're to placard the gospel you don't need to ask permission to walk by somebody's house with a placard maybe you do maybe he's going to call the police but i don't think i don't think a person's resistance can cancel out the great commission which is a command and I think one thing that's important to understand, in Luke 5, when Jesus is clarifying his call on his disciples, he casts a vision. He makes a prophecy, which is also a promise. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. Well, here's the thing. Fish don't want to be caught. And it shouldn't surprise us that fish resist being caught. So that when the fish resists, that's not an excuse to go home and stop fishing. That's why you have to catch them. If they wanted to be caught, you wouldn't
0: have to catch them. But I think we've surrendered to the culture on this one. Yeah, sometimes in terms of preaching the gospel, Paul will end up founding a church, and sometimes he'll end up getting stoned outside of the city, and sometimes both. And And in that episode when he was stoned...
1: He went back three times, and the third time he went back, the place was Lystra, it was Acts 14. The third time he went back, he found a disciple that was on the second missionary journey, and that disciple's name was Timothy. So sometimes ministry, which looks like failure, turns into arousing success. I would say if somebody stones you, that's if you're going to define failure.
0: I think that would uh, qualify. Well, certainly if you judge it by your audience's receptivity to your message, it would be failure. Yeah. But and you know, Timothy had a Christian mother and grandmother,
1: but I think he was probably converted by Paul's preaching. Paul also worked a miracle along with Barnabas. Do you think they were Christian or Hebrew? Uh oh, excuse me. Well they were they were old Testament believers. Yeah. So um but I think the conversion took place under Paul's preaching because uh, he calls Timothy his true son
0: in the faith. Yeah. So, uh, In your preaching, one of the things I really appreciate, and you've alluded to this a little earlier, is you present Christ in what I would describe as uh, beautiful and glorious terms. And you talked earlier about... Uh, you know, discipleship and and leading others in discipleship is this presentation uh, of Christ and getting people to love, love and pursue him. Uh, In in your preaching, uh, what's your methodology for um, that, that presentation of Christ to draw people to him? Well, the first thing
1: I would say is that I would never commend my methodology uh, as a model because
0: I'm somewhat anarchic, and um well, Spurgeon said he owed more to diversity than profundity, didn't he I think yes, he did say that, but i th- I think that um, the
1: the preaching has to be the overflow from worship. As I alluded to a while ago, here's the thing about Jesus. We never get to the end of him. We never see all of him. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ is God the second person. Because he did not cease to be God the second person during the economy of his incarnation and his three years of public ministry... We can't even get to the end of him in terms of the gospel documents and the explanations of the gospels, the elaboration of the gospel in the epistles. So, because we're dealing with an infinite reality, there's always something more to learn. And if there's always something more to learn, there's something more to say. And... In terms of presenting him beautifully or gloriously, he is beautiful and glorious. So our job is just to say what is there and to say what the scripture is saying in terms that our contemporary audience will understand. There's a wonderful, I don't know if she's still alive or not, she may still be in glory, but there's a wonderful expert or scholar on worship that comes from the Lutheran Communion, and her name is Marva Dawn. And I think most of her adult ministry has been conducted while she's been combating blindness. And she said that we need to search for words which are worthy of our destiny. We are we're bound for the promised land. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. And the thing that makes Zion beautiful is the Savior, whose face we will behold while we're there. That's the thing that makes heaven heaven. I can't remember which chapter. It's in Revelation, which says that we will see his face. That's the attractive thing. Yes, mom and dad. Yes, friends have gone on before. Yes, of course. Yes, the Apostle Paul. Yes, all our great heroes and even historical figures whom we know to be in heaven. But mainly, 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 we shall see his face. So, we're also, as those who communicate the gospel, we are also searching for words which are as worthy as they can be of Christ. See, that's another thing. There are no words worthy of Christ. But God has made us verbal creatures, and he's chosen to communicate the glory and beauty of Christ in glorious and beautiful words. So we have his permission, not only his permission, but his mandate and his command to communicate the gospel verbally. That means it can be done. Well, the inspired record is inspired by the Holy Spirit verbally. We have to ask God. To inspire our preached words, our vocalized words, by the same Holy Spirit who inspired the words that we're, the, the book that we're teaching from. And I think... But those are distinct forms of inspiration. They Well, they are distinct forms of inspiration. Yeah. Um, one is normative and authoritative. And one is an attempt to stick as close to the written inspired words as possible. I think that no young preacher is going to be helped much by a rigid adherence to any methodology because we're all different. He's going to have to find out what helps him. And I think one thing that helps is finding people who inspire us before we can inspire others. And those kinds of models and heroes are going to differ from person to person. I'm thinking right now, I wouldn't dare name him, I'm thinking of a preacher who has almost papal authority in the Protestant church in America. He doesn't do a thing for me. And that's no discredit to him. As a matter of fact, it probably reflects some sort of deficit in my own heart that I don't appreciate him more than more than I should, but I'm just saying that and and I and I'm thinking of another preacher who um, I could listen to every day and I would like to listen to every day and the reason is because he always teaches me something that I don't know either about the text or about the Lord and I want to know those things. By the way, uh, the same goes for commentaries. Some commentaries really, really help certain people. I had an extremely skilled and an extremely blessed expositor tell me in the last six weeks that Martin Lloyd-Jones didn't do very much for him. Well, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he does a lot for me. I think also you need to give yourself time to develop as a student of preaching and, and teaching. And what I mean by that is what you don't like at first, you may love later. I think probably the first six sermons I read by Spurgeon I didn't care for them. And I don't even know why I kept reading. But I'm glad I did, because he's by far my favorite. As a matter of fact, you you can't... I wrote this on social media just yesterday. It's hard to comprehensively endorse the writings of any non-canonical author. There's bound to be some disagreement. I would say, I mean, we just lost Jaya Packer. Um, Thank God we didn't lose his literary remains, but he just went to heaven last month. I can think of three major things that I disagree with Jaya Packer about. I'm sure that now he's in heaven, he agrees with me. I'm just (laughs) kidding. Um, But, as far as living authors, and six six weeks ago he was alive, I would rather be taught by the writings of J.I. Packer than any other Christian teacher who was still writing. I think maybe what he wrote was most valuable in a practical way, more valuable than any other living author, and yet I disagree. Well, I it, I'd be very, very hard put to think of anything I disagreed with that... C.S. that uh, Spurgeon wrote. Now I started to mention C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is probably my favorite author. There's, there are, there's a lot I disagree with. He was frankly wrong in many important areas. I am very um, sympathetic with his errors because he never, he never had any good teachers. He never had any true evangelical influences. Maybe John Bunyan, maybe um, the author of uh, *Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah*. I'm pretty sure Lewis wrote that, uh, read that, because he, he, I think he got the trilemma from that book. Alfred Edersheim was the author, but apart from Edersheim and Bunyan, I don't think he knew any evangelical authors. Maybe Richard Baxter, because he got the term. Mere Christianity from Richard Baxter, but I don't know how much of Baxter he actually read. But there's somebody who um, is very quotable for contemporary ministers, who can speak to this culture. And uh, obviously he's probably the most quoted author of the last 50 years in evangelical pulpits, even though he wasn't a thoroughgoing evangelical because he would have been very muddled in his doctrine of Scripture, by the way, which is uh, one of the defining hallmarks of evangelicalism. So anyway, I'm not really answering the question. The methodo- I, I think in terms of the methodology, pray over the text, pray through the text. Try to get the main points of the message before you consult a commentary. Don't let the commentaries formulate your message. Let your time with the scripture formulate the message. Let the commentaries augment, illuminate, and illustrate the message.
0: You mentioned there's a period uh, when new preachers, younger preachers, are trying to figure out um, their own methodology, their own commentary, their own uh, preparation practices. Um, how did you figure out your own, and, and what work what, well, what what tends to work for you? Also, uh, not as a uh, just as an illustration of how the process works, not necessarily um, to say everybody has to imitate that.
1: Well, I think you, f- I think you figure it out by being severe in evaluating what you just said, by listening to your critics by projecting a, a persona, an openness, that makes it easy for your critics to tell you where they think you're missing it or where you're weak. I, if, if I can be allowed to boast, I think I'm pretty good at that. I don't think there are a lot of people who'd be afraid to tell me that I blew it or that I was off base at least judging from the numbers uh, who've done that, I don't think I'm bad at that. Um, And I think, you know, in my own case, I know what my weaknesses are as a preacher because my critics are unanimous. If somebody um, charges you with a certain kind of weakness and you think he's wrong, and then 10 other people say the same thing, including your wife, then probably you're the one who's wrong. And I think that's, that's a great benefit. And also, in terms of studying commentaries or thinking through methodologies, the only way to learn how to preach is to preach. It's like hitting a golf ball or getting your first serve in or at least your second serve in the, in the service court if you're playing tennis or shooting a basketball. You can read books on basketball, but sometimes you've got to get out there and dribble. You've got to take, take the shots. You've got to practice and it's the same it's the same way with preaching. You you can and you will get better. I think also you have to discover who you are. This is true about who you are in the Christian life, who you are in a in a pulpit if you do have the opportunity to preach or teach. And I think that you have to take countermeasures. You you ask about methodologies. So I'll get back to that. I do have uh, an acronym that I that I think is helpful, and it's the acronym acronym full F U L L, and the F is fidelity. Am I saying what the text says? Am I being faithful to the text? The U is utility. Uh, is what I'm saying useful? The the first L is lucid, is what I'm saying, clear. And the last L is liquidity. Is it something they can use today? Is it something that helps today? Now, I'm very weak on practical application, so I have to work at it. And one reason I'm weak on it is because I'm so enamored with theology. I love theology. I'm quite satisfied If someone teaches me something about the text that I didn't see, or if somebody teaches me something about God that I didn't know, especially that, especially Mm -hmm. that. Um, Three days ago, two days ago, I met a pastor who mentioned a book to me written by a classmate of mine. I knew he was a writer. But I never heard of this title, and this pastor commended that book. And the name of the book is "The North Face of God" by Ken Gere, Gire G I R E. And I immediately ordered it. I I, I immediately emailed uh, a bookstore manager; she's going to get it for me. I'm sure it's long out of print. But the way the pastor talked about that book made me, made me know that I would learn things about God that I, that I had not discovered yet. Well, if I get that out of a sermon, I don't walk out of the church thinking, gosh, he didn't tell me five steps that I need to take. Now, it's dangerous for me to say this because it sounds like I'm disparaging. Not disparaging. There are a lot of people who really need that and who want it, and probably the fact that I don't think about it says something very bad about my Christian practice. Uh, and there and there's pastors that are really good in serving that up i'm thinking right now of one of the greatest or most honored preachers in America and i don't particularly I seldom hear anything when he preaches that's not obvious except except he gives you steps of action, and those steps of action are not obvious. And I think that that's the key to his greatness in preaching. That's the key to how beloved a preacher he is, that he tells you what to do. We don't always know what to do. I don't. I certainly don't always know what to do. But again, I love theology so much, and maybe this is a kind of uh, maimed theology because maybe it doesn't always lead to action. And therefore... Uh, it's a theology without legs. In other words, I can be critiqued. I'm not boasting about this attribute of mine. I'm, I guess, I'm, I'm confessing it, and I'm getting away from the topic. So I'll no, I'll but that's let it that, go that's
0: helpful. That you have the insight into your own preaching. Um, this is where I tend to focus. I've, I tend to focus on theology, the attributes of God, learning more about God, but incarnating those into people's lives, uh, is, is an area you're not naturally bent towards and you're aware of it and, and work on compensating for that as you, uh, teach texts.
1: I think part of it has to do your spiritual gifts. Um, If you have a a verbal gift, like teaching, or exhortation, or prophecy, you're drawn to certain aspects of truth. If you have a practical gift, like administration, or giving, or helps, or showing mercy, then you're frustrated if you're only getting theology. And you're not really being shown how how it applies. And you know, this is the point Paul is making in First Corinthians 12 and 14 that we are different members of the same body. And um, if we don't have all the gifts working, we're we're rather like an amputee. Mm. We're missing we're missing something. So the the eye should not disparage the foot, and the foot should not disparage the tongue.
0: If we're going to be complete, we need er- everything. One of the uh, paradigms you, you gave to me early in ministry that was, was really helpful, and I'm just wondering if you could talk about it a little bit, is you said that there are basically um, uh, three aspects or three roles of that a, um, somebody who, who's hired as a, a lead or senior pastor is typically asked to fill um, uh, can you t- do? You know what I'm talking about?
1: Yes, I think the three things. Let's say a church is going through a period of vacancy. Their last pastor has left. Their new pastor is not. It hasn't come. So the elders or a search committee are puzzling over who are we looking for? What kind of things are we looking for? I think you're looking for three basic things. Now, there may be 30 things, but there are three basic things. One is leadership. Leadership is not necessarily the same thing as administration. Administration is more task oriented, leadership is more people oriented. One thing you're looking for is teaching can this person preach? Can this person teach in such a way that we are changed, that we are informed and we're transformed? Can he inform us? Can, can he tell us something we don't already know? Can he tell us something that's not obvious? But can he teach in such a way that, we, that his listeners are, are changed? Um, and the third thing is pastoral care. Is he sympathetic? Is he empathetic? Does he care? Does he love us? I've once heard Chuck Swindoll say that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And also Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 1.5 that the goal of doctrine is love. In other words, truth is not enough without love. Truth should lead to love. And love should be the motivation for us to share the truth. Because it's the truth which is redemptive, because it's the truth that makes free. John eight thirty two. So I think that any church or any search committee member, any church looking for a pastor, ought to shout hallelujah if you get two of those three. I don't. I honestly don't think it matters much which two. Sometimes it depends on the area of the country. Sometimes it it depends on the socioeconomic stratum of your people or the bulk of your people.
0: You think one of the things as I went through a a search recently, I thought about those three paradigms you gave. And then one of the things I thought of is, um, what's, what's the church looking for and what can I provide? And do those align? In, In other words, if they're primarily looking for somebody to uh, give pastoral care, visit people in houses, things like that, and that's my area of weakness and my area of strength is preaching from the pulpit, and that's third on their list, that that might not be a good fit. Um, so that's one of the things I th- uh, one of the ways I used that paradigm you gave to, to help me as I was looking at churches and trying to figure out, you know, what's going to be a good fit are, are there what they view as primary in that list versus uh, secondary and tertiary? And then how well do those align with um, what, I, what I feel like my areas of gifting are?
1: I think that's something you really need to be aware of, but I don't think it should be critical in the final decision. And here's why I'm thinking of a very productive ministry marriage in North Carolina. Uh, Now, he's an educator. He's not a pastor. But he's a very, very effective Christian educator. And I remember having a conversation with him, basically with his wife, but he was present. Um, And she was telling me the things on her list that she was requiring in a husband. She is a great singer. Uh, One of the two or three voices I most would like to hear sing Christian songs and she's a wonderful worship leader. He's a fabulous guitar player, really great, but he can't sing. And uh, one of the things that was on her list was somebody who could sing with her. Hmm. And, and when she shared that with me, he said, well, you didn't get that, did you? And she said, <laughs> I made a new list. Hmm. So there's no accounting for romance, In other words, a church may think that they want this kind of person. Churches usually recruit the opposite of the person who just left, unless his ministry has been just unbelievably outstanding. You know, if you follow a legend, then you want somebody just like the legend. But if you follow, most pastors have weaknesses and if they stay there very long, their churches are worn out by those weaknesses. So they're trying to avoid the disappointment of the last guy's weaknesses. So what they want to do is they want to shore it up. And, um, but there's no accounting for romance. You, you may say, well, we, the last guy was a really good preacher, but uh, he was kind of a confused or weak leader. So we really want a good leader, but you might have a candidate that is a good leader, but he bores you to death in the pulpit, and you recognize that during the candidating period. or You, you meet somebody who, by his own testimony, is not a very strong leader, but you just love his preaching so much that you think, my goodness, we, it's going to be great to go to church if we get to listen to him. So you kind of forget about what you thought you wanted because of the, because of the new romance, now, I'm a Southerner, and I am um, I come from a white-collar family with a blue-collar ethos. And what I mean by that is that my parents were the first generation who had anything like white-collar jobs in the history of our family. And we care about... We, we, we don't just care, we, we relate to and we love and we feel very at home with um, wage earners, with people who are not professionals. And I'm also from the South. And in the South, pastoral care is really important. Relationships are really important. You can compensate for a lot of weakness if you really love somebody and you know that you're loved by them. It's like a family member. I mean, we know that family members have weaknesses, but they're in our family. We love them. So it's hard to compensate. The word pastor means shepherd, and the pastor needs to be skilled at shepherding. And you better be George Whitfield if you... Um, if you don't really love your people and if you don't show your love for your people. And you've got to be the spiritual equivalent of a Napoleon Bonaparte if you think that leadership is going to compensate for a lack of pastoral care. Now, obviously, the greats, the true greats, they get away with it. But for most of us in churches, say, below 800 people, pastoral care is so important. You can't exercise pastoral care in a very comprehensive way if the church is over 800 people, but you've got to shepherd somebody. Most pastors in churches that large learn how to shepherd the leaders, but you better be shepherding somebody. And then equip them for
0: service in the body. And those leaders that they're shepherding are equipped to serve the body um, That's the point and the goal. Yeah. It doesn't always happen. Um, uh, another th- piece of advice, I started out ministering uh, largely to senior adults and uh, hospital visitations and uh, things like that were a, a, a large number on my docket. And I remember asking you one time, um, when you're going into a situation where... Um, you know, you, the the situation's essentially not going to get better. The person's on the on, on the on the downhill slide, or or things look very dire or discouraging. I kind of asked you, you know, what do you say when you go into those hotel rooms? What do you tell people?
1: You mean hospital rooms?
0: Yeah. Did I say hotel? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. With with COVID, maybe uh, hotel rooms safer. Um, but when you go into those hospital rooms, what do you say? Um, and I was kind of asking, how do you make it better? And, and you gave some really good advice. Do you, do you remember what you said or do not need a jog? I don't mind? remember what I said, but I can, I can say what I think now.
1: Okay. I think first of all, you shouldn't put too much pressure on yourself to make death desirable. Now there are ways to show the desirable aspects of death. But even John Calvin, who had ice water in his veins, said that no mortal can look upon his own demise without a tremor. And Christians want to go to heaven, but few Christians want to go to heaven today. As a matter of fact, I know of one Christian who's convinced everybody for decades that she wants to go to heaven like right now, and she really envies the people who die. But she had some sort of physical emergency a few months ago, and she called 911. And so her friends really gave her a hard time about that. <laughs> they <laughs> thought, we thought you were serious. Now we, now we know you were just kidding. Why did you call 911? I think the, the most important thing, and this is true of all pastoral ministry, is just to be there. Mm-hmm. To, to, to be there and to touch. In the age of COVID, we, we're shying away from touching, but just show up and touch. About 80% of ministry is just showing up, just showing up. You don't have to be profound. You don't have to make it okay. I also think that uh, we need to listen. We need to uh, try to scratch where someone is itching and not just begin to bathe them with platitudes. I just had a very, very painful experience. A very dear friend just went to heaven two weeks ago, and for years it had been settled that I would preach his funeral. And if we weren't in a plague era, I would have flown to Memphis to preach his funeral. I can't remember if I was in Montana or Idaho when he died, but because of the plague, I simply couldn't do it. And he called me 48 hours before he died and just was kind of expecting me to be there. And it was killing me. And one thing that I did is I just talked to him about the glory that he was about to enter into. He'd been on hospice for a while. He actually decided he was going to die in May. And he lasted, well, I remember now, he died on July 26th. And today is August 10th. So maybe on July 24th, he called me. And one thing I began to tell him as I began to talk to him about the glory he was about to behold. He was widowed by two wives. He loved both of them. Um, Of course, he was predeceased by his parents and they were strong believers. But mainly I talked about Jesus and what he was about to see. I even mentioned, I said, do you realize that a week from now you will probably have met Adam and Eve, which is an un- it's just an unthinkable reality that we can't relate to at all. But I spoke to him of the glory of heaven and I, live, I listened to the live stream of the sermon and his son who gave a beautiful eulogy mentioned the fact that I had called and how much that call meant to him. Or Actually, he called me, but that I'd said those things and how much those things meant. But it was in a context of real pain because I couldn't be there with him. So I think showing up, and I, and I think just saying Scripture, we all know the relevant Scripture, the Scripture which comforts, the Scripture which speaks of the glory to follow. I don't think we need to invest anybody with false hope, especially if they're aged, mm-hmm. and especially if they're, if they're in a, term, a terminal phase. So I think just being present is the main thing. Listening is an important thing. Praying is an important thing. Sharing scripture is an important thing. All the obvious things.
0: Yeah, and and that was what you, I think the main thing I remember from our earlier conversation was you, you said it's it it's not really about what you say. Uh, it's really about showing up and being there, and and I think of in terms of uh, that in terms of a ministry of presence, uh, which of course with 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 COVID is is. Um, an area of extreme limitation I want to say, let me say
1: interject something else at this point and this is this is a little bit risky for me to say this because I don't want to incur I don't want to discourage anyone but if you don't want to show up you may not be in the right profession hmm. you may be being called to a different aspect of Christian ministry rather than than the pastorate such as teaching or things like that sure teaching or writing or missions outside of a pastoral context. Um, not every missionary is a pastor. I had the great good fortune to be a missionary and a pastor at the same time, but more of a more of a pastor than a missionary. I was certainly a very down market, um, second class missionary. But uh, I, admit, I was a pastor overseas. But if you don't want to be there, um, it's hard to compensate for that.
0: Now... Uh, let's talk about missions a little bit. You spent 24 years overseas. Um, How how did you, um, uh, what kind of awoke you to your desire to do missions? What did you, what do you do you enjoy about it? What are the challenges in it?
1: Well, you're awakened to desire just by realizing that it's there. And I think from the moment of my conversion, I wanted to be a missionary, but I believe that my gifts were more suited to the pastorate, and I was given an opportunity after being a pastor for nine years in North America. I was given an opportunity to pastor in a, in a beautiful, wonderful place overseas. Um, near the Iron Curtain with an opportunity as the original congregation were mostly missionaries with an opportunity to go in and out of Eastern Europe covertly during the Iron Curtain days and be a pastor at the same time which I thought was ideal and it was ideal and I loved it. I relished every minute of it. So, um, and again, what I was saying about pastoral care. If you don't have the desire, you might be in the wrong profession. If you don't want to go overseas, don't. If you don't want to be a missionary, don't be a missionary. Don't let anybody shame you into being a missionary. Also, being a missionary is not so much a question of a location. A plane ride never made a missionary. Plenty of lost people around us. The great attraction of missions and the great urgency of missions is that we go to a place where the gospel is an unknown category. And even if it's a known category, we don't know where we can access the gospel. I now live um, in a county of, I think, a million and a half people. And it's a gospel-saturated place in the American South. Now, over half those people are lost. So there are plenty of opportunities to be a missionary. But probably only 1% of those people have never heard of the gospel or don't know where they can find out about the gospel. I mean, if you just open your eyes in Memphis, Tennessee, you see churches and steeples everywhere. And you also have Christian radio, whereas I move there from Moscow, Russia, a city of some 15 million people, and I would say there would be um, a minimum of 14 million people who have no idea what the gospel is and who don't know where they could hear the gospel or learn about the gospel. I would say probably more like 14.7 million people. They certainly know what Christianity
0: is, but they don't know what the gospel is, so. As much as you can know what Christianity is without knowing what the gospel is. Um, As you served overseas, how did, it, how did that change your view of the, the church in the United States? Well, the first thing I want to say is that
1: I don't want to bite the hand that fed me. Hmm. It's easy. You don't have to go overseas to disparage the American church. You can stay in America your whole life and see discouraging things in the American church. I think that um, so, so. Before I say what I have to say, um, it's not like I know any other people group well. I mean, it's possible that the Finns are more generous than Americans. I know at one time the Finns sent more missionaries than per capita than any other country. It's possible that the South Koreans are more generous than Americans. I don't know. It's my impression though that Americans are the most generous people in the world. Mm. And I think that's one attractive feature of the American
0: church and certainly helped facilitate your ministry overseas. Well, it certainly
1: did. I mean, the Christians I know are certainly generous, but but I mean, you can you can denounce as a missionary, you can denounce the percentage of budget that's spent on um, gilding the lily. That's spent on. I, I recently had a tour of a new church building, and I think the pastor is a good man. I don't know him very well, but I get the impression he's a good man. He's a man I wanted to listen to. He's a man I wanted to learn from. But he was ex- when he was explaining the convection oven in the new, professional, world-class kitchen. And also pointing out other features, I was thinking, you know, what would the Apostle Paul think of this little tour? And um, what about all these pastors who don't have a roof on their building or who don't have all the pastors in Africa who don't have walls on their building or all the church buildings in the world that are not heated so, but I mean, yeah, I mean, all my churches have been, most of my churches have been air conditioned. I've certainly aimed for that, so I'm not putting that down. I think that um, we can, just to sum it all up, there's a danger in any church, American or Japanese or Venezuelan, of being inward looking. And I think this is the great advantage of short-term mission trips. I will tell you that it's unless you're building a building or cleaning up a job site, it's a very rare short-term mission trip that helps the local missionary that much. Usually the local missionary has to drop what he's doing to babysit the short-termers. And I think a very high percentage of the short-termers are on an excursion. I'd love to go to Chile. I've never been to South America. I would really have to examine my motives as to why I signed on to a short term. It's a very rare American high schooler or college student who doesn't want to go to Europe. So what are the chances they're going to come back full-time? Very slim. What are the chances that they're going to really help what's going on on the mission field in that locale during their short-term investment. Very, very slim, very negligible. What are the chances they're going to take up the local missionary's time with babysitting where he's neglecting other vital assignments? Very likely. So why do it? Well, because there's a high, there are a high percentage of people who go overseas as a career as a lifetime commitment, who would have done that if they'd never had a short-term experience. Who wouldn't have done that? Who who, who would have done that if they hadn't had a short-term experience. And there are also people who get their fire lit by the short-term exposure so that missions becomes much more of a vital concern because they've seen it. They know the missionaries. They've seen the people there ministering to and so they become much more committed financially they enlist other people to become committed financially and they they raise awareness for the missionary and his and his mission now i think that um there's something else in terms of critiquing the north american church or critiquing any church and that is this There's a fine line between pointing out weaknesses among believers in an acceptable way. For instance, as the prophets of old pointed out the sins of Israel. There's a fine line between a legitimate exercise of that prophetic ministry and what uh, Paul Washer calls bashing the bride. Maybe that, maybe your friend's fiance is ugly, but you're not going to say that. You're certainly not going to say it to your friend if you want to keep that friend. Well, there are certain aspects of American Christianity which are ugly, but that's Christ's bride. Now, there's something else.
0: Well, I think there's a difference in motive, too. You you can be uh, working to prepare the bride is, is a beautification process. I think sometimes people with their critiques can either use it uh, to dismiss the church or, or with the objective of um, helping the church become what it ought to be. I think those are two radically different motives that people could... Uh, doing as as they're examining the church.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's, so it's especially uh, egregious when someone is denouncing the blemishes of the church, who's abandoned the church. I'm thinking of two church leaders I know right now, two parachurch leaders who actually were involved in the parachurch to aid the church, but they no longer go to church, which I think is tragic. Um, But the other thing is According to Ephesians 4, the church is supplied with pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, by the Lord Jesus himself, and Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the one who sets and removes the candlestick. Christ is the one who opens and closes the door. So when we're pointing out all the weaknesses of the church and all the places the church comes short, we have to be careful. Because it can sound like our conclusion is that the head is not doing his job. Hmm. So we need to temper those criticisms with that, Caution. Now, Samuel Johnson said something about marriage that I think can be applied to ministry. It can certainly be applied to our own personal walk with the Lord. It can certainly be applied to how the church is doing. Samuel Johnson said, marriage is hard, but it's really only hard insofar as life itself is hard. Marriage is a part of life. Well, ministry is a part of life. The church is a part of life. We're fallen. Our flesh, is, which is still with us by virtue of these bodies we carry around, is still in a rebellion. The Christian life is hard.
0: Think of the um, Chesterton quote that, uh, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Yeah, that that's exactly right. But
1: what I'm saying is the church is no more blemished than my own personal Christian life is blemished. Mm-hmm. The church is no more dysfunctional than that my own Christian life is dysfunctional. The church leaves no more to be desired than my own Christian life leads, leads to be desired. I'm thinking of somebody in our Memphis church who was, uh, complaining and saying the church, this, the church, that, the church, this the church, that. And I said, and I called him by name. I'll say, Larry, his name wasn't Larry. I said, Larry, you are the church. <laughs> and that was, that was a new thought for him. Yeah. And, uh, and he told me he appreciated me reminding him of that.
0: Well, another thing, and I think, um, I don't know, the, the spirit of our age uh, is very much in, in a setting where it is very okay to assign sin and blame to institutions, but it's, it, it's more hesitant to do so with individuals, and it's especially hesitant to do it with yourself. So a lot of people are looking at the uh, big systemic problems that exist um, in the world in in institutions, yet they're ignoring the sin that's within them and and the threat that that causes to them. So I I think, you know, what you're saying is true and it may be especially true in our day and age because it's, um, uh, much easier to, to focus on the external problems of the world of institutions than it is, uh, to examine my own heart. And, and figure out what's wrong and what's going on with it.
1: Well, back to Chesterton. I can't remember the exact quote, but he wrote a famous short letter to the Times when he, he said, Sir, I am the problem. Mm. And there was, a, there was a famous comic strip, now ancient and defunct, called Pogo. And there was a famous... It was very popular in the 50s and
0: 60s, and there was a famous... So you're giving us Chesterton and Pogo. That's yeah, quite was the a, diverse range. There was a
1: famous uh, strip with Pogo in w- which he said... There's, a, there's another famous quote. We have met the enemy, and he is ours. Pogo said, I've met the enemy, and he is us. Hmm. And so, to your point... It's a good rule of life, even if you're not a Christian, it's a good rule of life, to be severe and austere in your estimate of self, in production, in motives, in ability, in you know, performance, and to be extremely gracious and charitable in your, in your uh, evaluation of others. And for most of us, it's just the opposite. And I think... Social media tends to prove that. Well, I think that what happens is if we can focus on one aspect of life, we can probably find one aspect where we're doing better than the other person Hmm. if we restrict it to that one aspect. And so we like to concentrate on the aspect where we feel strong and we think others are weaker. That's very human. It's also very sinful.
0: And it's something we need to resist. Uh, this may be, I don't know how much overlap these questions will have, so I'll kind of ask them together. If you were um, talking with somebody who is considering uh, going into missions or if you were talking to somebody who is considering going into the pastorate, um, what advice would you give uh, that person or those p- persons? Well, I'm
1: going to give a very equivocal answer to that because I would say an early influence in my life was Josh McDowell. And he was a sterling, positive influence. I think that, you know, I encountered Josh when I was a senior in college, and I think his main target audience is university students. So he hit me right between the eyes when I was a college senior, I think now i st- I listen to him and I think, "Well, his audience is still university, mm-hmm. and he misses me by a mile now, but he's not aiming at me. I think he's got the spiritual and the and the intellectual equipment to hit me between the eyes right now, but he's not aiming at me, so what he would say, especially when preaching to an audience, pleading christian values with an audience, with a generation which was making up its mind about his future, he would say, assume that you're called, Mm -hmm. and let God prove to you that you're not called down the line somewhere if you're not called. Now, a later influence, whom I've already mentioned, who became a hero to me, he died March 1st, 1981. Josh is still alive. But a later hero to me was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones took the opposite tack. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Martin Lloyd-Jones if someone registered uh, the consciousness of a call to the ministry, he would try to talk them out of it. Hmm. And his philosophy was the philosophy of Orthodox rabbis who often encounter a Gentile who wants to become a Jew. And their The mindset of an orthodox rabbi is if you can be talked out of it, you better not do it. And so, Martin Lloyd-Jones would try to talk the candidate out of it. If he found persistence and resilience and perseverance, if he found that this young person could not be talked out of it, then he would get on board later down the line. But he would never jump on board from the beginning. And again, the idea is if you can be talked out of it, you better not do it. So I would say, the first thing I would say is swallow hard and count the cost. And I would also, if I had the... What would you say the cost is? Well, I think one cost is you're never going to get rich. (laughs) And I think another cost is your mom and daddy are probably not going to brag to people that you're a preacher. Even the word preacher or missionary is very disparageable. I mean, it's not like saying, yes, my son is a neurosurgeon or, yes, my son is a Supreme Court justice. Um, Now, if you've got a very godly mom or dad, they may brag about it. I would brag about it, but Mm -hmm. not that I'm godly, but I (laughs) I value that category. I mean, there's nothing more precious to me than the word missionary. But the average seatmate on a plane is going to turn up his nose. You tell him you're a missionary. So... Um, so you're never going to get rich. And in one ways, in one way, you're never going to be the boss. Because the pastor is really not the boss. You're not the boss of a group of people who can fire you at any moment. Haddon Robinson, a great trainer of preachers who went to be with the Lord two or three years ago, he said that, the role of the pastor is equivocal because he leads from the middle, and um I think also it can be a lonely
0: place What did he mean by that for those who well, don't he meant by that that, that in
1: one sense you are everybody's leader, yeah because you 're the pastor you're the one who gets up and talks you 're the one who has the main voice at the business meetings and at the elders' meetings, and you're point of view is very formidable. It's not an easy thing to oppose, but on the other hand, you can be fired at the drop of a hat. Yeah. So, you're not only at the helm, you're also back in the pack, because mm-hmm. two or three well-placed people in the church, their opinions will be considered ahead of you. Mm-hmm. So, you're in the middle because you're behind them. If they want you gone, you're going to be gone. It doesn't matter how excellent you are. If two or three key lay people want you gone, your history. And that's true in almost every church. Yeah. Um, I think it can be a lonely place. One reason it can be a lonely place is because it's very hard to have an unfettered, uncomplicated friendship with a member of your Church. That's partially true because you don't want to be perceived as playing favorites. Mm -hmm. That's partly true because it's hard to relate to your pastor solely as a friend. Uh, He's an authority figure. Um, And many, many people, many pastors, find their friends outside the church they pastor, their closest friends. I think that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were closer friends to the Lord than the 12. Than either the three. I think he actually went there to recover from his time with those 12 guys. <laughs> now, I can't prove that, and I may be wrong, but um, I think it's often the case that a pastor finds his, his friendship. So you've got, you, if you do get rich, probably something's wrong. Probably somebody needs to review the books, or we need to say, well, why are, why are you rich? Why did you get rich in ministry? We asked this question about politicians. Um, you know, you had this net worth before you came in office, and coming out of office, you got this net worth. How did that happen? Why did it happen? Your salary is only this. Yeah. Okay. So, and again, you know, you. I think another. I think another. Uh, reason it's hard is because there's no place where the adage, you can't please everybody, applies more than the ministry or the pastorate. There's no place where it's more applicable.
0: Well, and I think in, um, you know, in ministry, not only does everybody have an opinion, everybody thinks God's on their side as well. So they fight for those opinions more vehemently oftentimes.
1: This is why in the more evangelical churches, you have the hardest fights and the most likely splits. If a person goes to a liberal church, probably he doesn't care that much. And by liberal, we mean a, a kind of a... Doesn't lack, take
0: the Bible seriously. A
1: lackadaisical a- attitude toward the authority of Scripture. Yeah. Um, well, if that person do- doesn't like a decision, well, you know, he's not sure how you know what God wants anyway. If a person... Believes in inerrancy and believes that his position is a biblical position. Well, if you're opposing him, you're opposing God, and that's intolerable. And that's a reason to leave, or that's a reason to get another leader.
0: Yeah.
1: So it doesn't matter if uh, you're not if the general is not pleasing the colonel. It doesn't matter if the CEO is not pleasing the COO. He's the boss. But it matters if the pastor is not pleasing the chairman of the Board of Elders, chairman of the Board of Deacons, or the treasurer, or the key lay leaders, or the teacher in the largest Sunday school class. That matters. It means you got you're, You might be in trouble. So all these are factors that can make ministry hard. Now, none of, none of it matters, though, in terms of being determinative. Hmm. Who, what difference does it make? If that's what God wants, what difference does it make? It's not like there are going to be downsides of a secular pursuit. It's not like you never lose your job if you uh, become an accountant or, let's say, a restaurant owner in the time of COVID. I mean, if you're the owner of a popular restaurant, you're one of the most popular guys in town. But some of the most—I just learned that one of the, the owner of two of the most popular restaurants in Memphis just moved to Florida. Mm. and just ahead of bankruptcy and uh, because of the situation we're in so so again ministry is like life life has risks life has life itself has liabilities but but I I will say this it's really bad if you're out of God's will if you're a plumber it's worse if you're out of God's will when you're a preacher it's really bad if you're out of God's will if you're a banker. It's worse if you're a missionary. So if you're speaking for God, if you're representing God, but you're not really doing what God wants you to do,
0: that's serious. Those are definitely key key warnings to heed in a great way to think about... Um counting the cost. You know, I think the warning of scriptures, uh, not many of you should become teachers. Yeah. And I think that aligns with um, Martin Lloyd-Jones exhortations. Um, in difficult times in your own ministry, uh, what has strengthened you? What has bolstered you? What has kept you going? Just the consolation of knowing you're doing what God wants you to do.
1: The consolation of the fellowship with Christ, who was rejected. You know, Christ Christ was perfect, and he had a difficult ministry. As a matter of fact, it killed him. Um, and I'm very imperfect, and I, I may get killed, but I don't expect to uh, be hung on a cross. It could happen, but it's probably not going to happen. Um, so, and I think for that reason, along those lines, the great encouragement is the difficulties we see in New Testament ministry. If I read the book of Acts, or if I read Paul's epistles, and I saw that there were never challenges and difficulties, I would have given up long ago. Hmm. Because I know I've been in disastrous ministry situations. As a matter of fact, i precipitated some of those disasters. <laughs> and... Um, but so when I see that the two prominent women in Philippi, Yodi and Syntyche, couldn't get along with each other, and it was so severe that Paul had to write their names in the letter, think about that. He could have discreetly whispered in the ear of the person taking the letter to Philippi. Can you imagine getting your name in the Bible because you can't get along with somebody in your church? Think about <laughs> that. That's mind-blowing When I think about the fact that Paul and Barnabas split up after the first missionary journey over the issue of John Mark, that they simply could not agree. And I can imagine that it went something like this. Barnabas said, oh boy, you can preach grace. You can really preach grace, but you can't practice it very well, can you? You know, and Paul says, look, it's not about grace, but he's just not going. Uh, Decisions have consequences. He quit. The first time, he can't go the second time. Maybe he can go the third time, but he can't go the second time. And, and and so, but but they couldn't agree.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, that's almost like two members of the Trinity not being able to agree. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that Paul and Barnabas could not agree. But they couldn't, and so, so they split up. It's unbelievable what was going on in the church at, at Corinth. Yeah. It's unbelievable that Paul was alone at the end. Only Luke is with me. Demas hath left me, having loved the present world. Um, so when I see this and says, oh, that's awful. That really depresses me. No, I say, great. That's fabulous. That's wonderful that they had those problems. And it's more wonderful that those problems were recorded and preserved for those of us who have problems now. Because we know God had his hand on those men. We know God was achieving something monumental through those men who had those problems. So we have some hope that in some comparatively smaller way, as we compare candles to the sun, that our little light may be shining and may dispel some darkness somewhere, even though we've got all these things which are going wrong.
0: Yeah. And that just reminds me, again, I think a theme of what you've been saying is just uh, dependence in ministry. We want to be depending on Christ, we want to be trying to gain more of Christ. We want to be praying uh, as, as we minister. And it's just a, a, a reminder that the, the progress and the, the strength in ministry doesn't come from us, but it comes from God. Uh, we're never going to be able to accomplish anything significant in, in ministry without Him working. Second Corinthians
1: 4:5, our adequacy is not of ourselves. And Paul says, I will boast rather of my weakness, and where dependence is the objective, weakness is the advantage.
0: Uh, Anything else you would want to share with somebody who was um, uh, looking to go into ministry, considering ministry?
1: Well, I cannot, without some emotion, help but saying it's glorious. And um, at the risk of sounding at the risk of vaulting what I do, the in discredited as the word preacher is. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, "God had one son, and he made him a preacher." So I will say the thing is glorious. The thing is glorious. Now, I'm saying preacher. Um, At this point in my ministry, if I had to give up preaching or pastoral care, I would give up preaching. And I love preaching. But the thing that that is valuable is a connection to life. It's the life-on-life experience with people. And maybe a fairly high percentage of what you're saying in that 40 minutes or so on Sunday morning is not necessarily touching people where they need to be touched. But if you're on a pastoral visit, you can find out where that place is and you can touch it. So um, I would hate to give up either one, although I'm getting to the age where I'm going to have to give up both of them someday. Maybe someday soon but if I had to give up preaching or pastoral care I would give up the preaching both are vital and if you're going into if you're going if you're going to work in a church I hope you want to do both but one reason I say that is because there are a lot of people who want to work in ministry who don't feel particularly gifted verbally or who don't feel that that's where their main gifts are well that should be no impediment. To your, It's certainly no impediment to your usefulness in the kingdom, and it need not be an impediment to your usefulness on a local church staff, certainly not in missions, because it's just loving people, which will draw them to the cross. Obviously, they have to know the truth if they can never be free. So you got to tell them the truth, but that doesn't have to happen. Uh, behind a microphone in a pulpit. It can happen countless other ways.
0: Any advice for somebody who is uh, struggling uh, or um, feeling worn down or discouraged in ministry?
1: Yeah, I would want to know the reason why. Um, I think that... It's always possible you can't you, you can't eliminate the possibility that you may not be called or perhaps you should be doing something else, but um, it could mean that you're not being properly coached or mentored, that you're not getting the right counsel, you know. Luke is a model because Luke found somebody who knew more than he did and he served him. That person was Paul. And Luke found somebody who knew less than he did and he served him. That person was Theophilus. And the result of that commitment on Luke, Luke's part was a companion, a companion for Paul on the second missionary journey, one of the three replacements for Barnabas. There was Luke, there was Silas, and there was Timothy. So God certainly replenished Paul's team. But we also get Luke-Acts out of that commitment. Well, the reason I got off on this tangent is because be sure you find somebody who knows a lot more than you know about ministry and make them your mentor and counselor. Because that person... Or that team, maybe it's going to be more than one person, will be able to help you ascertain if you merely need to make an adjustment, and it could be an adjustment in your own attitude, or your own your own devotional life, or your own understanding of what ministry is, or if you need to, pers- if you need to be a tent maker, you need to stop depending on ministry as your main income. Or if you need to change a venue, if you need to just go somewhere else, or maybe to do something else in ministry beside, beside what you're doing. But there's a lot of discouragement in ministry. There's no doubt about that. Um, but his banner over us is love, and, and underneath are the everlasting arms. There's no place where we have a greater promise or greater prospects for help
0: than the ministry as well. Uh, This is circling back. You know, you mentioned ministry being a very isolating place and and a difficult place because you're, um, you're viewed as an authority figure. I think also sometimes feels that people feel as though they need to put a front on uh, around you, uh, because you're a preacher. You mentioned the difficulty of, um, making friendships and, and, uh, uh, finding, um, uh, real connect, real connections with people that are, uh, encouraging to you. A lot of times in ministry, you're pouring out a lot, uh, but it can be difficult to have, uh, others pouring into you. Do you have any advice or exhortations, uh, to people of, um, how to make sure you don't end up in a lonely place in ministry?
1: I think one advantage of our generation is that the person who ministers to your loneliness doesn't have to live in the neighborhood. Um, I have had, I'm thinking of one man who has been my pastor who lives in another country, and another man who lives in America, but for 24 years I've been outside America, and for um, 16 of those 24 years he's been one of my two pastors. Hmm. I think you need to be aggressive. I also think that you need to be a little bit bold in approaching your heroes. You'd be amazed at how many famous authors, famous preachers, famous Christian leaders are flattered and complimented and eager to make themselves available to any young man who may just contact them, who might approach them. Um, I spent about three hours one day with somebody who had corresponded with me. He's, and he really wasn't an evangelical, but he was a great scholar. And I could tell that he felt complimented by my... Appreciation of him and the contribution he can make. It was C.E.B. Cranfield, who was a towering scholar at the University of Durham in England and wrote a magisterial two volume commentary on Romans. Again, he was not, he would not have called himself an evangelical. I think that most of his conclusions were eminently. Biblical and very helpful, but he didn't like the term because he thought it was a party term, and he didn't want to associate with a party. Um, and I, I, I have a very close friend who became one of the closest friends of um, of Warren Wiersbe. Warren Wiersbe succeeded Theodore Elp on the Back to the Bible broadcast. Warren Wiersbe was once the pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. Warren Wiersbe was probably the best Bible teacher in America. He died about two years ago. He was a great and a good and a godly man. But my friend just loved him, and my friend just reached out to him. And Dr. Wiersbe loved him back, and they were extremely close, extremely close. It It was like a David and Jonathan. And all my friend did was initiate. Uh i I won't name his name because he's still alive, but I will say one of the two most famous counselors in America Christian counselors and authors. He's probably not the most famous now, but he was ten years ago um, his best friend was a best friend of mine and and I'm asking myself how did my best how did his best friend become his best friend how did my friend become the best friend of this famous man. Well, he just reached out to him. He just called him with problems. He just told him that he was, uh, that he appreciated him. Hmm. And uh, that famous man preached his funeral. And I I, I had a word at the end of the funeral. I would have probably preached his funeral if he hadn't been best friends with this great leader, because I was his pastor. Um. So don't think that the people who've helped you are not approachable. You may be surprised. Now, you might get the brush off. I'm thinking I was brushed off by somebody famous once. And uh, really almost in an insulting way. I can think of that happening a couple of times. But... Sometimes, you know, a successful salesman may make 10 attempts before he has one sale. So um, let me put it this way. God will raise up what you need to do ministry, and that includes friendship, and that includes mentors. But seek them out. Don't be passive.
0: Go after them. Any last words or, or things you want to, uh, something you want to emphasize before we uh, finish up the interview? I don't know if we're in the last days,
1: but I think we need to pray and witness as if we were in the last days. There have been times in church history, the age of the Reformation, the age of the 30 Years' War, even World War II, where it looked more like The coming of the Lord was very soon than it looks now. But I will say that in my 70 years, um, it seems like many things are coming together which suggest the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we need to work while it is day, for the night cometh when no one can work. And I think we need to pray that when the Son of Man comes, he'll find faith on the earth, and that we need to be among the faithful. And a time is coming when um, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will, will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And we need a time is coming when the um, planter will overtake the reaper and we need to be a part of that, and we need to avail ourselves of the promises. Philip Melanchthon said the Christian doesn't live on explanations. He lives on promise. Hmm. And we need to avail ourselves of the promises in our generation. And the, I happen to be a cheerful pessimist. That's my temperament. I expect disaster, but it doesn't bother me. And I'm very pessimistic about the cultural trends, the political trends, the economic trends, and even the pathological trends, where I don't know how long from now people will listen to this, but we don't even know if we're in the middle of the pandemic. I hope by the time anybody hears this that we'll, we'll be past that are near the end, but um, there's great opportunity Churchill said, never let a crisis be wasted. And I think we can assume that people who've been reminded of the fragility of human life and the very reality of their own mortality might be more available to listen to a gospel which can give them a life which can never be alienated or threatened, a life that can never end. So we need to get busy And we need to to take the opportunity, the tide when it serves, as Shakespeare said. So
0: let's work while it is day, for the night is coming. You've uh, written two devotionals on the book of John called uh, The Path to Discipleship. Uh, You're working on another devotional book. Uh, What is it and how far along are you?
1: The devotional book is on
0: Genesis, and I'm in chapter 32. Uh, When can uh, what's do you have a working title yet? I really don't.
1: I it could be from Eden to Egypt. Hmm. I would love to do uh, uh, from creation to covenant, but
0: Alan Ross already wrote a commentary with that title. (laughs) He, uh, I thought Ross was creation and blessing
1: maybe you're right it's been a long time since i looked at the book and i no longer own it i don't know what
0: happened to it well you might might double check the name might uh, there it is right there creation and blessing by ross on the bookshelf isn't this a happy
1: discovery (laughs) and maybe somebody else took it so the the uh name of the book may
0: be from creation to covenant um uh, how how is writing because you've spent most of your ministry uh preaching and you were an aspiring author i know for a long time uh, what what kind of finally pushed you over into writing and well, how do you feel like it's it uh really is a lot different how, what are the differences to preaching well i haven't had a pastoral
1: charge that i was solely responsible for since i was 65 years old now i'm only i'm almost 70 So ministry never ends. Um, The task is never completed. And even though I've enjoyed other aspects of ministry, apart from being a senior pastor, I have much, much, much more discretionary time. And um, I would say the main difference is that writing is very deliberate and drawn out, where preaching is very episodic and defined. I mean, you know, you... At a certain time, you have to deliver. You got to start at a certain time. You got to be done at a certain time. In writing, you unless you sign a contract with a publisher, which is not likely to happen in my
0: case, uh, you set your own pace. Hmm. I, I think I'm always intimidated by putting anything in writing because it just feels uh, so much more permanent. <laughs> you know i th- i think the advantage of preaching is a lot of times people forget uh some of the things that were not worthwhile and and hopefully remember the things that were uh significant but it, um and then i think of all all the mistakes i've made along the road to me it's more daunting having those in ink rather than in the ether well but it is easier to correct your written mistakes than your vocalized mistakes mm and I never thought of you it that You
1: get way. to reflect on it a little more. You get to edit and review. You don't get to edit and review a sermon once it's preached. No. It's out there. As Jay Vernon McGee said, you can't unscramble
0: eggs. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I know a lot of people will be looking looking forward to hearing this. They'll be looking forward uh, to your next uh, devotional book that, that's put out. Um, thanks so much for joining us and thanks so much for, uh, your many years of ministry. And, uh, I've really enjoyed having you for many years as a pastor and a dad. Thank you. It's a privilege. If this podcast has been encouraging to you, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at surviving ministry podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, congratulations. You survived this podcast.